Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Wow, how about that? <laughs> how about that? What a journey. Um, you know, honestly, at the beginning of this, as Pastor Andy announced that he was moving and um, that he and Amy would be going on to another step of ministry, Grace and I were with Andy at Tokyo Joe's having lunch <laughs> when he announced. And, you know, we both were shocked, you know, came out of nowhere. We were emotional. We were happy for Andy and Amy, knowing them and loving them so well and knowing this new opportunity would be so great for them. But immediately our thoughts went, my thoughts went to, now what? <laughs> now what? What do we do? Um... Even in that very first meeting, I immediately said, well, let's take care of it. We've got the best team here. Let's just do it. And in talking with Grace and Andy, and um, we thought, well, let's, let's just see. Let's just see what the Lord does. We've got time. We've got a faithful group of people here. We were able to thrive in this season and as we went through the season, as we prayed, and as the board met with candidates, it just kept coming back around. Meanwhile, the Lord is continuing to encourage and waken my heart, not only to a love of Emmaus Road, I've had that, not only to a willingness of service to Emmaus Road, I've had that for years, but just a desire to step in and to do what God is asking us to do which is love and care for his church. To be his church, not only as we gather in these mornings together, but in our weekly lives, in our community. And I don't know if I'm the right person. I am the person for now. We'll see. You know, I think anytime God calls us to do something great, it comes with a bit of trepidation and humility. I will do my best not to let you down, but I probably will let you down. I'll do my best to guide us in humility, to be approachable, to be correctable. And as we do this together, I'm so excited. I'm confident the great days are here and great days are ahead, growth in this ministry. You know, we couldn't be more thrilled to be nominated to you all as lead pastor. And in so many ways, the last few months have presented new challenges to all of us. But they've also felt pretty good, haven't they? I felt it, at least for me. Hopefully you've felt that too, as we've gathered around, as we've rallied around one another. For myself and for Pastor Grace and the rest of the leadership team, we never once considered just falling into maintenance mode while we waited for the next pastor. You know, we all agreed 
that this was to be a season to continue chasing after God's move, to continue chasing after the kingdom here in Fort Collins. And as we've played together, worked together, thanks all you guys and gals who came and worked yesterday. That was a long day. Worshiped together, discipled one another, and over the last, last few months in so many ways, we've begun to see glimpses of the potential new vision, new life breathed into our ministry at Emmaus. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm about. It's not a time to wipe the slate clean and start from scratch. We'll continue to present Christ as Savior, to pursue Christ as King, and to partner with Christ in service. That's our mission here at Emmaus Road. The mission, the defining characteristics, the defining marks this will, be, this will continue to be what we chase after. You know, first, we preach, teach, and practice citizenship in the kingdom of God, first and foremost. As the people of God, our allegiance aligns with Christ. We approach life and culture from a kingdom of God perspective. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we faithfully engage the world with hope of the gospel and participate in God's renewal of all things. This inspires us to live with compassion, to demonstrate love, to lament when necessary, and to celebrate the goodness of God. We shape our worship to retell the story of Jesus. As you may have noticed, as a community, we follow the seasons of the Christian calendar, Advent, Lent, Eastertide, Pentecost, ordinary time. And each service, we also follow certain rhythms. Celebration, confession, assurance, the spoken word, the preached word, and communion. We believe that these patterns are forming us into the likeness of Jesus. And finally, we pursue intergenerational ministry. I love this about Emmaus Road. As a church, we believe every generation brings value to our community. Therefore, we intentionally connect all generations through worship, service, and fellowship. This promotes spiritual formation and provides a sense of belonging for all ages. This is who we are. We're not changing these things. We're not starting over. This is what you're signing on to as being a part of a man's road. And this is what I am committed to remaining faithful for and chasing after as I lead you all, if you so choose. But what I'm excited for is how we can breathe new breath and new life, new excitement into our gatherings and growing our ministries. You know, John Wesley, the father of so many church movements, including our own here at Emmaus Road, once famously said, I set myself on fire and people come and watch me burn. Did you know that? <laughs> I set myself on fire and people come watch me burn. I'm not necessarily going to do that this morning. John Wesley was not a martyr either. What he was talking about was the power of the Holy Spirit in him, in his life. The spirit alive in him and the gospel of the kingdom of heaven was on his lips and people were drawn to that. 
And this is not just a promise or an aspiration for famous church leaders like John Wesley. This is a promise for you and for me, for all of us, all who would open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. A few weeks ago, you remember we were learning about the faith that Jesus desired for us, for his disciples to have. And I presented a challenge in saying that Jesus wants your faith to grow. Jesus wants you to have bigger faith. That wasn't a critique or a judgment. It was simply an admission that no matter where we are in our walk with Christ, there's more. More to be had. You might remember about a month ago, as we were preaching through Matthew 5, we heard these verses, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus calls us to be flame, to be light. To draw and to attract others from far and wide by the filling of the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus says that if you take what he said seriously, if you hear his words, watch his actions, and that if you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit's filling, then these words, these promises to be flame and to be light, to be attractive, will be true in your life. You know, but for so many of us in the modern church, if we're honest, this is not our experience. Maybe we've got a small flame burning. Maybe we've got a small group of people who rely on us, who come around us. But for the most part, is the church blazing for the kingdom? It's not your fault. If anything, it's my fault. It's our fault. It's our modern church's fault. Somehow, we've forgotten our identity. Of course, I'm generalizing here. There's plenty of on-fire Christians, and there's plenty of on-fire churches. But if we had to take the pulse of how we're doing, we might have to listen pretty hard. And it's because we've forgotten what metric we should be checking. We've forgotten the pulse that we should be listening for. The church has gotten distracted by power, politics, building, growth metrics, programs, comfortable gatherings. Jesus wants more. Second Timothy chapter one. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the Holy Spirit gives us For the Holy Spirit given to us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline so that we may not be ashamed and testify about our Lord. We need to work at this. 
we need to continually be reminding ourselves of what we've been called to, what we've been promised. If you're a follower of Christ, you probably remember the moment in which you were first set on fire. Maybe you were rescued. Maybe you were healed. Maybe your eyes were simply open to the beauty of God and life in a new way that you'd never expected. Scripture calls us to our first love time and time again. That's what we're chasing. And this is not just so that we can mark off some achievement on some list somewhere. You know, got the flame, check. Fan the flame, check. You know, this is because we've been given hope. We've been healed. We've been transformed. We've been restored. We've been forgiven in our own lives. And we're so grateful and renewed that we can't help but share that with others. That's what I'm choosing. That's what I'll continue to encourage us all to choose and chase after. This is what I'm committed to in leading you if you so choose. This is how I believe we should all be poised as we present Christ as Savior, pursue Christ as King, and partner with Christ in service in our community. You know, and I love what John Wesley said, I set myself on fire and people come watch me burn. But I think I would offer this tweak. Having experienced the Holy Spirit, the healing touch of God, may we be set aflame by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing others to the light of his love and mercy that they too may be renewed. Having experienced the healing touch of God, may we be set aflame by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing others to the light of his love and mercy that we too might be renewed. Maybe it's not as flashy as John Wesley's version, but for me, it fills in the blanks. <laughs> well, this morning, uh, we're continuing in our sermon series called The Way, in which we look at the things that Christ did, and we ask ourselves, what does that mean for us? Learning from his way of doing things and his way of saying things and then allowing that to shape the way we live in our communities. Fort Collins, Loveland, Greeley, Windsor, Severance, what else? Anyway, the, the, the local area. You know, we've been learning from his healing and other great signs that Jesus demonstrated. And today, we'll be seeing another one of his famous interactions that defines, in many ways, the way we look at Christ. And it should be definitive of the way we experience Christ as well. Sound good? Ready? Let's dive in. Let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, guide us, O oh God, by your word. And Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light and in truth find freedom. And in your, and in your will discover peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, it'll be on the screens for you. You're welcome to turn there. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. And Jesus went out from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees, we fast often, but you, your disciples, do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear even worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. For if they do, the skins will burst and the wine will, be, will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, many of us are familiar with this story in one version of our, or another. Maybe we've seen it in pictures. If you grew up in the church, you've probably seen it acted out with puppets or those little flannel graph things. You know, the tax collector, either this one or Zacchaeus in the tree and Jesus coming and they're going back to the house. You know, that's be good because the church has historically recognized the importance of this story and following Jesus' example in calling those who might otherwise be overlooked. And I hope to remind us of the themes of the story because one of the cautions with familiarity as we begin to stop hearing what this is really telling us if we're too familiar, too comfortable with these verses, we might miss just how radical this is. Jesus and our gospel writer, Matthew, had a very specific point to be made. Jesus, in enacting this, but then our gospel writer, Matthew, for recording this. First and foremost, the writer is talking to you. He's talking to us. Like, in the same way that Scripture is always talking to us, in the same way that Scripture is always speaking to us as the Holy Spirit inspires us and prompts us, but even more specifically, he's talking to us because this story was written to the Pharisees. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's making a point to the Pharisees. And we are probably one of the closest things to representing the Pharisees as we have these days. I mean, that's not totally fair because some of you are less jaded and, you know, less indoctrinated than others. And there are literal Pharisaical Jews living in the world. But um, you see the point. Like us today, the, the Christian church in America, we come pretty close to representing the things that the Pharisees said and did to Jesus in his ministry. So just know that the story is talking to us and just know that sometimes people who love us have to tell us hard things. 
Sometimes we need to be approachable and correctable. So that's what we're aiming for today. We're aiming to try to hear what it is that Jesus was telling these Pharisees and allow it to shape our lives. First, we're going to ask ourselves, who are these tax collectors and sinners that are in the story? And who are the tax collectors and sinners in our society today? We're going to ask, what was motivating Jesus to interact with them in this way? We're going to look at what is new about this approach that Jesus is demonstrating. And then finally, we're going to ask ourselves, how can we be shaped by these ideas? First, Jesus received much criticism for his association with tax collectors and sinners. But who were these people? Tax collectors were primarily Jews conscripted by the occupying Roman government to gather tolls and tariffs on agricultural produce and other goods being transported by their peers. The Jews were living in an occupied state by the Roman government, and they were having to give what they had earned to the, to the Romans. And these tax collectors supported themselves. They were given the leeway to take a little extra on top of what they were required to take. And that's how they supported themselves. So for those already hated as collaborators with the enemy, they were stigmatized even further for skimming off the top in order to feed themselves. It must have been an utterly greedy or perhaps an utterly desperate person to take this job. So the tax collectors represented the most stigmatized and desperate people of Jesus' day. So what about these sinners? We never really get the exact word, the exact definition here, but the word used almost, des almost assuredly inspires this idea of so strong social disapproval. You know, it's a Greek term, and uh, it, it's a Greek term which references a particular class despised by the Jews. In other words, these were just folks that the Jews just could not deal with. They could not look at in, in positive light. Likely, they weren't murderers or thieves. They might have been, but they, not necessarily. But more likely, they were the least apt to fit into the normal Jewish society due to their loose morality or coarse social characteristics. So the sinners that we're talking about, these are, these are folks with loose moral loose morals, maybe coarse language, <laughs> perhaps even having sinful beha behavior that was recognized by the society, but they were still willing to engage in that. Jesus is once again going out of his way to have meaningful connections with these folks. The folks who demonstrated or represented the things that were the most uh, avoided, the most uncomfortable for the Jews around him. So the sinners that we're talking about are folks like you and me. Folks who at some point made decisions, behaved in ways that were 
not socially accepted. Maybe to different degrees, but we are the folks that Jesus was talking about. But he's also going out of his way to make a point to the religious folks watching this interaction. Jesus had a singular fo focus on being compassionate and a willing healer to the sick and the broken. Story after story in scripture shows Jesus being willing to cross boundaries in order to bring restoration to the hurting, and even at the cost of his own safety and reputation. But most importantly, Jesus needed the Pharisees, the people looking on, that he needed them to see, he needed them to know that behavior and ritual were no replacement for compassion and justice. In this passage, we hear this thing that he says to the Pharisees, but go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus says this, he's quoting scripture. This comes from Hosea chapter 6. These words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, in Hosea say, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And it seems at first kind of out of place because in Hosea, you know, it's talking about the literal sacrifices that took place at the temple. And there's no sacrificing going on here in Matthew's house. But if we think about it, the passage is drawn from a section of scripture describing God as the healer of Israel. God is a loving and merciful healer. And God's true servants will be those who themselves are genuinely loving and merciful not merely ceremonially religious. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. God is a loving and merciful healer. He's looking for folks who will be loving and merciful, not just folks who know all the social right things to do and say. Jesus demonstrates for us that most, the most appropriate setting to be flame and to be light is among the sick. It's among the hurting. It's among the stigmatized, the desperate, the abrasive. In much of Jesus' ministry, the religious folks around him were asking why he seemed so focused on disrupting the way things had always been done. Why was he, a respected, authoritative rabbi, intentionally rubbing against the grain of tradition and common practice? I imagine if we today were behaving like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did, then perhaps we might also encounter some friction. Our family and friends might equally be concerned. They would likely be worried that we're taking this Jesus thing a little bit too far. They might say, I'm worried that you're taking this Jesus thing a little bit too far. But where does this idea come from? Where do we get the notion that a life of faith lived in service to the kingdom should be respectable and dignified? It comes from comfort. It comes from fatigue, from apathy, from a lack of exposure, maybe a lack of dis discipling, maybe a lack of equipping and teaching, 
It comes from allowing our faith and the miracle of the kingdom of God to become commonplace in our thoughts and our activity. It happens to us today, and it happened to the children of God in Scripture. Isaiah famously said in his, in his book, Wake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, Christ will shine upon you. And later, Paul repeats this exact passage in his book to the Ephesians church. Wake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And Jesus himself is showing us that we need to put off the old unfruitful practices and chase after new life-giving ones. To be love and mercy. In some cases, we need to lay aside old ways of doing things in order to fully embrace the flame of Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. You know, at the end of our passage this morning, we have those three examples of how you can't mix the new and the old. It just doesn't work. You know, these are given by Jesus to remind us that the incarnation of God, God with us, was to awaken his faithful to the fulfillment of the law and prophets. The new kingdom that God was ushering in. Jesus did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I'm sure the Pharisees didn't like hearing the rebuke. But with a contrite heart, the Holy Spirit, it was given in love. You know, it's okay. It's even necessary to change and to grow and to expand the way we understand Jesus and how that affects the way we understand God. We've been quoting this a lot lately. You guys might be able to repeat it. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time in which God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. The morning has broken on a new day in our passage and perhaps for us today. The morning has broken on a new day, God's new day. And the practices that were appropriate for the nighttime are now no longer needed. I'd like to challenge us with three perspectives on our passage today. And each might have their own takeaway. So this is kind of when we start digesting what we've been hearing. First, we might identify with Jesus and his demonstration of seeking out the lost, the marginalized, the broken, in order to bring compassion and mercy and relief to those most in need. To be willing to learn new methods and new tactics in doing this. To not allow our comfort or our tradition or fear to limit our effectiveness in working for his kingdom. This is likely the most common point of view. This is the easiest point of view for us to wrap our heads around in this passage. And if that's how the Lord is working on you today, I'd encourage you to grab onto this, to begin asking yourself, who is it that God is leading me to? We might identify as the sinners or the tax collectors 
that we admittedly are? Why do we, especially the longtime Christians living in comfort and privilege, so often identify ourselves with the positions of power in Scripture? If we're honest, is there not just as much that we can identify with in the stigmatized, desperate, abrasive characters that Jesus chased after in this story? And notice what the folks did when they were confronted with the love and the mercy of Jesus. They gathered around him. They ate with him. They shared their lives with him. Who are we seeking out in relationship to provide love and mercy and guidance and accountability in our lives? What voices and mentors are you chasing? Who's speaking into your life? Are we willing to leave it all behind at a single word of invitation from Jesus in order to sit at his feet and be covered by his love? And third, finally, we might identify with the tax collector who, upon answering Jesus' call, immediately filled his home with friends and family that they might too receive from Jesus. Did you notice this in the passage? I love it. I love this about this passage. Jesus called Matthew, the gospel writer that we've been learning about, learning from. Jesus called Matthew to follow him. And what's his first reaction? He immediately gets his friends and his family and says, you've got to come over. We're going to have dinner and something crazy is about to happen. He immediately filled, filled his house. How hot is the flame burning within you? How attractive is your light? Because that's what was happening with Matthew. People wouldn't respond to I mean, if like you and I experienced today, you know, there had to be something that was happening in Matthew's life that caused those folks who heard that invitation to want to come on board, right? Are the people gathering around your table at your invitation, are they there to hear about love and mercy and truth and justice? Think back to our definition of tax collectors and sinners. You know, these aren't necessarily drunkards or drunk addicts. You know, they might be, but, you know, most likely they're just our friends, our family, our neighbors who perhaps just could no longer stomach the hypocrisy of the church and they quit. They might be your friends, family, and neighbors who could no longer take the hypocrisy of the church church and so they quit they might be your friends who got comfortable complacent lazy maybe just drifted away from the flame that they once knew do you know any sleepers you know these days they might be your covid church dropout friends and neighbors i mean it is true our churches have shrunk by a quarter to a half. Not just this church, the church. People quit. They got out of the routine and they haven't come back. There might be people 
that you're thinking of right now who are comfortably perfect, per, com, perfectly comfortable in their lives, their activities, maybe even in their churches, but they would be the first to admit that they're not being called to flame and light. What does this look like for you to fill your table with those desperate to be love and mercy, truth and justice, flame and light? What does it look like for you to bring those folks, to bring hope to those that have either walked away from the church or have allowed themselves to become sleepers within it? May we unashamedly share the gospel, the good news uh, that we've experienced in our lives and invite our friends and family on this journey. May we be unashamed to invite others to the table that we have found. Am I asking you to invite your friends and family to church? Yes. <laughs> Am I inviting you to in invite your friends and family to this church? Yes. I'm not asking you to poach people from other churches. But the Holy Spirit does the work in us, doesn't he? Think, of, think about it. What was it that was happening in your life right up to the point that you said yes to a life in Jesus? The Holy Spirit was working on you. He was working in you, calling you. And someone, something, some moment, some experience just came at the right time to connect the dots for you. We believe and we trust that God is doing that in everyone around us all the time. And we're called to be light and flame when given the opportunity. Well, let's pray. Lord God, um, It's with a lot of humility that we hear this message from you today. Lord God, um, we're not here to just critique your church, but we are here, Lord, to cry out for revival in our nation and revival in our churches, to cry out for the power and the love and mercy of Jesus to be so real in our lives that it's affecting those around us. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to those people who might be the most desperate or stigmatized in our society. Are you calling us to bless them? And if so, how? God, we ask that you to open our eyes to who may be the most abrasive people that we know. Are you calling us to befriend them anyway? And if so, how? God, for us here today, we, you know, we are hearing this call to be flame and to be light. Perhaps, you know, you're here this morning, you're hearing this call, you're hearing this challenge, and you're thinking, you know, that you don't have any scandalous story, that you maybe been doing your best to follow Christ your whole life, but if you're honest, you don't know what else there is that you should be doing. 
you do your devotions, you come to church, but your flame is just still barely holding on. Lord, may we turn our eyes back to the promise you gave us way back as we started these series to wait for the promised filling of the Holy Spirit. To breathe flame and light into our lives that we might carry it to others like a city on a hill. Lord, we recognize that your Holy Spirit is here and available today. And that, Lord, if we want to go from just loving God and doing things that are being, uh, doing the things that we know, if we want to move from that to being flame and light, that all we need is an encounter with your Holy Spirit. If that's you today, if you're hearing that call, and you're willing, I invite you to hold out your hands and just silently pray this prayer along with me. Come, Holy Spirit, fill my life. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill my life. May I be light and flame, love and mercy. Lord, may we move from the sidelines, from the commentator's box, from the scoffer's seats, and join you in your powerful work of your kingdom. And God, by receiving your filling of the Holy Spirit, by gathering around your table, taking the bread and the cup, and knowing, experiencing that you are good, Lord, may we be formed more and more into your likeness. And may we chase after your love and mercy. Amen.